Good morning, Community Life Church. We are so grateful you are here this morning. My name is Addie Middleton, and I am an associate pastor and the director of Caris Ministry here at Community Life Church. And it is my joy to welcome you here this morning, whether you're online or here with us in the family room. We have been praying for you, we've been anticipating you, and we're so glad that you have joined us this morning. Uh, at this time, I'd invite you to stand so we can align our hearts as we say the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power, the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father God, we are so grateful for you. Thank you for this space that we get to gather. Thank you for this community of believers that we get to gather together and to worship you. We invite you into this place and turn our hearts towards you. Allow Scott to be a vessel for your word today and let it speak to our hearts. Bless this time that we worship together and bless this time that we get to uh, hear your word. And it's all in your son's precious name, amen.
rescuer. I needed rescue. My sin was heavy. But chains break at the weight of your glory. I needed shelter. I was an orphan. You call me a citizen of heaven. Savior is risen, that we have an empty grave to look at, and that we have an empty grave to rise from. Our, uh, our faith is a transformative faith. It's one that changes us as we, as we uh, live into it. Uh, one of the things that Scott says often that I love is that Jesus loves us enough to meet us where we are, but he also loves us enough not to leave us where we are. And, uh, and, and Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says that in our sin we were dead, and that, uh, that God through his great mercy has made us alive with Christ, not only made us alive, but has risen, or has raised us up with Him and seated us uh, at the right hand of the Father. So if that's not transformation, I don't know what is. So uh, as we continue to worship, I pray that you would just think through those things and think through the ways that, that God has changed you and the ways that God will change you into His likeness. Amen.
between us Now other mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name Into the night And through the darkness Your loving Talk through the shadows of my soul The work is finished, the end is written Jesus Christ, my living hope Who could imagine so great a mercy has spoken I am forgiven the King of Kings calls me his own beautiful Savior I'm yours forever Jesus Christ my living Lord Hallelujah
let's pray together, church. Father, thank you just for bringing us here. Together we know that in this time, in this place, it's no accident that we're here. God, we know that you have a purpose, a plan, a design for us, and you brought us here. So we thank you for that. We thank you that you can be trusted, Jesus. We thank you and look to you just as the author and perfecter of our faith and as Lord, as risen Savior, as King. Jesus, we could go on and on about all the things that you are. We thank you for being hope for us, that our hope is not found in any other place but you and that you can be trusted fully, completely. Jesus, we know it's not always easy to, to take that step of faith and trust, but it's worth it every time and you are there every time and you come through every time. So thank you just for our songs this morning. We lift them to you, Jesus, without you. We've got just empty words, but with you, this is worship. We just thank you for the hope that we have in that and just the awe and wonder, God, I pray as we open your word together and, and just study what you've said and and who you are and what you've called us to be and, and allowed us to be a part of the, your story, the story of redemption. And, and you've let us be a part of that, Jesus. You've made that way possible. Um, it's just, I pray that, that our hearts and minds would just be blown away by you and by that thought. So thank you, God, for everything. We love you so much. We look forward just to the rest of the time we have together and leaving this place and this week and next week and every week beyond. Um, we love you so much and we thank you so much. And it's in the mighty, mighty, amazing name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen, amen you guys. Man, thank you for being here. Thank you for singing with us this morning. Love just to start our time in that time of worship and praise. So, so good. Before you guys grab a seat, if you would, just say hello to somebody around you. Welcome them to CLC. We'll jump in the word. our disaster response team a big round of applause. I appreciate these guys and gals um, getting out there. I, I heard a report that there was a lady who was completely barricaded in her yard and these guys showed up with the skidsters and the chainsaws and she said it was like angels sent from heaven. And so we're just so appreciative of the work that you're doing. Good morning. 
Hope everybody's doing good this morning. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us today at Community Life Church on this beautiful Sunday morning. My name is Scott Verano, and I'm the lead pastor here at Community Life, and it is an honor to have you here in our family room or to have you joining us online. Um, we are just crazy enough to believe that God has something for you, and it means the world to us um, that you would join us during this time. Uh, at Community Life, we love God, we love our neighbor, and we believe that our mission is to connect people to Jesus because we believe that Jesus is the source of life. And so our hope is that after you have discovered that source of life and connected your heart to it, that you will then take and connect every other person that you know um, to the love of Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. Um, so a couple quick announcements, and then we're going to jump into the message today. It's, it's weird how after three services, I can't remember if I've said certain things. So like if I just make the same point twice in the same sermon, just go with it, okay? Or tell me, say, no, you're stuck. It's like, remember the old records? They'd skip and they'd be stuck. Somebody just pop the preacher and he'll get on to the next point. We'll move on. I love the 11 o'clock service. You guys are so awesome. Or 1130 service. Okay, um, so a couple quick announcements. Uh, the, the, if you've been starting at the church for a little bit of time and you're wanting to find out some more information about the church, on the seat in front of you or if you're at home online, there's two QR codes. The QR code on the left um, gives you information about upcoming events um, or how to find out more information about the church. You can use that. The one that's on the right is our giving QR code. Uh, Greta told me this morning that we're sending out the, the middle of the year uh, giving statements and her word to you is thank you for being such a generous church and, um, and thank you for helping us to connect people to Jesus. So there's, there's that announcement. Um, and then this Sunday or September the 17th, at 5.30, we will have our beach baptism service. Now you may be saying, Scott, that's a lot of baptisms. It's a lot of baptisms. So we've been doing this. We had our children's beach baptism service here not long ago. We have our family baptism service coming up and we already have 40 people that are registered to be baptized and we're excited about that. And so we invite you to come and join us on September 17th at 5.30 out of the beach. We're gonna eat. And then at six o'clock, we'll start the baptisms. And if you're interested in being baptized, uh, you can stop by out at the welcome desk and you can get registered that way. But this Wednesday night, we start all of our Wednesday night programming. So if you have children, uh, make sure that you get them registered. Kristen is going to be doing a mini VBS, M-I-N-I, VBS uh, over the next couple months. And so if you want your students to learn about their Bible and to have an absolute blast, make sure that you go ahead and get them registered. Um, you can use that link that I was telling you about, the QR code. Um, and if you have high school and middle school students, uh, their, their programming kicks off this week as well. And they'll have games and they'll have a Bible study and and it's just a great chance for them to get to know other students in the area that are the same age as them. So we encourage you to come in and be a part of that. And I think that's everything. All right, so today we jump into part two of our series, uh, The Gospel According to Matthew. And I'm gonna tell you, I am just stoked, man. I am so geeked out about this series. And I don't know that you guys are as much as I am, but th this is what I love. I love studying. I love breaking down scripture and offering you something that I think will help you as you go through and study. Now, if you're new to church and you've never been in church before, it may seem weird what you're going to hear today, but let me just tell you this. Over these four weeks, we are going to look at the gospel according to Matthew and study it and find out what makes it different than the other three gospel accounts how to study it, what are the things that run through the Gospel of Matthew that highlight it from the other Gospels, so that when you read it, it'll make sense to you and you can understand what Matthew's trying to say and how it applies to our life. And here's one of the things that I, lo I love to say about how we teach, is that community life, we value a practical faith. And what that means is we want you to know that, that it's our heart 
that the words that were written 2,000, in some cases 3,000 years ago, are still applicable to our lives today. And so we do this study so that it's something that you can take and you can wrestle into context and use in your life. And so that's why we go through and study it. And so looking at the Gospel of Matthew, um, I want you to know we do not have four Gospels. We have one, and it's presented to us in four different narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of the Gospel accounts are a little bit different but they all reveal to us a nuance or a side of the gospel message that is important for us to understand. And so in particular, as we look at Matthew, the first thing you need to know is that it is our belief that Matthew is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, known as the tax collectors. And we believe that to be 100% true Maybe, right? Like, we're not really sure about that. Matthew doesn't sign the gospel. But what we know is that early, the earliest records in church history around this time when the early Christian church was growing um, offers us the understanding that this was the gospel that was credited to Matthew. And they would have had the other gospel accounts. And so that early church kind of delineated who they were associated with. And so just diving back into church history, we take that and we believe that there's no reason to think that Matthew didn't write this. And it, and it makes sense. So he's the one that we attributed it, it to. A couple quick facts. If you were to wonder how the gospel of Matthew was constructed, um, there are some, some things that will help you to see that. So if you took the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke and you put them side by side, if you were to look at the things that are exactly the same, you would discover that both of them use the gospel of Mark as a baseline for their writings. And so if you compared them and you pulled the gospel of Mark out, what you would be left with is is some more insights that really line up. And those insights are what biblical scholars believe to be a collection of writings that in antiquity are what they call the gospel of Q or a list of sayings of Jesus. And so gospel of Matthew, gospel of Luke, you take the gospel of Matthew and then you add some of the sayings of Jesus. And then what you have left are the, are the understandings of Matthew and the understandings of Luke that flesh that out. And so for Matthew, because he's uniquely Jewish, the rest of the gospel of Matthew is geared towards a Jewish audience. He takes and he writes his, his message that's, that's geared that way. So um, the next question is how, how old or when was the gospel of Matthew written? A um, lot of different arguments over this. The one that I love the most places the writing of this gospel somewhere around 70 AD. And here's why. Is that in 70 AD, Rome comes into Jerusalem and they squash what's known as the Jewish revolt. And so the Jews were sick and tired of the oppression of Rome. And, um, and so they fight back against Rome. And this happened in about 66 AD. And Rome, they do what Rome does. They come in and they put this rebellion down and they just destroy it. And the big exclamation point on the end of this revolt is when Rome makes their way into Jerusalem and they obliterate the temple. So the center of Jewish worship during that time for all that it was known for, Rome burns it to the ground. They push all the stones over. And in essence, they end the ability of the Jewish nation to have their worship and to have their temple for their faith. And that's how Rome comes in and wipes them out. So why do I believe this is the time? Because there are two central themes that run through the gospel of Matthew that I believe come about as a result of what Rome does to, to, the, to the temple. So um, when Rome destroys the temple, now if we just set the Christian faith aside and we look at Judaism, um, what Rome does to the temple changes the faith forever. So a faith that was centralized around the temple now has to find its way to survive 
without the temple. And so the group of Pharisees rises to the power. The Pharisees are the ones that were in the communities. The Sadducees were the ones that were most responsible for temple worship. So the Pharisees rise to a place of prominence and they take and they set their worship up around the synagogue. So back into the community. And so the Jewish faith was really maintained and protected as a result of the Pharisees. But another thing that the Pharisees did really impacted that new growing Christian faith. So prior to 70 AD, the believers in Jesus were allowed to worship right alongside the Jews, those who didn't believe in Jesus. They could go to temple, they could go to synagogue, it was okay. But after the temple was destroyed, the Pharisees would not allow that to happen anymore because they were trying to keep the faith pure. And so as a result of being pushed out and ostracized from all of the synagogues, you find two threads that run through the Gospel of Matthew. One, Matthew anchors Jesus in the Jewish faith. And what that means is this, is that because the, 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 the Jewish believers in Jesus were being ostracized, Matthew wanted them to know, this is his congregation, that Jesus didn't just show up, but rather he is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. So for you to believe in Jesus as a Jew was not you abandoning your faith, but actually understanding it in its full context. And so for Matthew's gospel being written to his congregation, this was presented in a way so that they knew that they could believe in Jesus, even though society was pushing them away and they would still be whole and not have to abandon their faith. The second thread that you see running through the gospel of Matthew is the awareness of the Gentiles. And so just for... Um, for, for Matthew's sake, as, the, as the, Jews are, the, the Jewish believers in Jesus, as they're being pushed out of the synagogues, they discover there's this big world out there of Gentiles that are responding to Jesus. Now, if you don't know um, what a Gentile is, you have the Jewish nation and people that are Jewish, and then you have everyone else, and they are Gentiles. And so if you're not Jewish, guess what you are? You're a Gentile. Right? And so as they're being pushed out and ostracized, they start to recognize that, that there are other people out there that are not Jewish that are responding to the faith. And so what this causes Matthew to do is to go back in and study. And what he finds is that it was a part of God's plan all along to make room for the Gentiles to be connected to the faith, which then brings us to chapter one. And I'm going to paraphrase these really quickly. This was last week. Chapter one, verse one, Matthew anchors Jesus in the lineage of two people as a son of David and as a son of Abraham. And so the son of David, David was believed to be the king by which the Messiah, his bloodline would come through. And so connecting Jesus to David was very, very important. So it brings about the understanding of the Messiah. But connecting Jesus to Abraham was ultimately also important because Abraham, the prophecies that were spoken over him were that he would be the father of many nations. He comes from Ur of the Chaldeans. And so Abraham holds the space of a door open for the Gentiles. So in chapter one, verse one of Matthew, you see both of those lines running right through it. Chapter one ends with the story of Joseph being confronted with the big decision to make, which is this Jesus. His wife, Mary, is pregnant um, with the gift of the Holy Spirit and the birth of Jesus Christ. And he has a decision to make. Is he going to put her away? Or based on a revelation and an angel that speaks to him, is he going to take and allow her to be a part of his family and to offer her this lineage that connects all the way back to Jesus? I mean, all the way back to, um, to David. And he makes what scripture calls a decision that's righteous and he incorporates her into the family. And so we leave chapter one and you have Jesus connected all the way back as well as the Gentiles connected back. Chapter two is a wandering weird chapter. And what Matthew does so masterfully 
is he connects the life of Jesus to the life of the Israelite faith, even has them um, dealing with, with Herod and the killing of all of the babies. If you think of Egypt and you think of the pharaohs getting rid of the babies and killing the babies that were from the, the Jewish nation, all the way back to Israel having to go into exile into Egypt, you have the same story of the family of Jesus having to go to Egypt. And so in chapter two, you're connected to the bigger story of the faith, which ultimately gets us to where we are today, chapter three and chapter four. Now, if you are a good, strong Jewish believer, and if you're a Christian who understands scripture, if you think about the Old Testament, before God is about to do something, he usually sends somebody to say something, and who are those somebodies known as? Prophets. God always sends his prophets to herald the arrival or to herald a repentance or to call his people to something greater. And so when we get to chapter three, it makes sense, and I want you to understand it this way. It makes sense that Matthew would now bring out a prophet and he would introduce us to John the Baptist. Because if you're a Jewish person, then you realize God is going to say what's about to happen and then he's going to prove that what he says is true. That's chapter four, uh, chapter three. And then we're gonna get to chapter four and Jesus, who has just been spoken of, is now going to go through a time of testing. Think wilderness, right? So the story just unfolds. And, and so just to stop for one second before I read the first scripture, it makes sense to me for you to consider it this way. Um, we're, we've been so conditioned to read scripture by hopping all around, different points. But if you were to read a book today, you'd start in chapter what? One. And so it makes sense if you started in the gospel of Matthew in chapter one, he connects them to the lineage. Chapter two, he parallels it with Egypt. Chapter three, a prophet shows up. Chapter four, we're gonna test and prove who he is. And then from there on forward, we're gonna look at his teachings and what his message is all about. So it makes sense to Matthew's audience that the gospel is unfolding this way or that the good news is unfolding this way. And so I hope that helps you as, you as you study and as you read it. So let's open up to Matthew chapter three. And I am thrilled with studying this with you today because there are things in here that I think will help you tremendously. So Matthew chapter three, verses one through three says, in those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one whom the, who the prophet Isaiah spoke of when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so as I said, John, uh, Matthew is now introducing you to John, the one that is going to herald the arrival of Jesus. But if you are Jewish and you are during this time, you would have to wrestle with the fact that for 400 years, about 400 years, you have not recognized um, a known prophet like a known prophet hasn't stood up and, and proclaimed um, to the people and kind of pointed in that right direction. And so with Matthew pointing at John as being a prophet, you are connecting back to the Old Testament, which was their testament, and you are calling them into a deeper part of the story. And so here we have God once again speaking about this great move that he's about to do. Now we're told in this first verse um, where John is. And what you need to know is that John does not show up in a random pond somewhere. Like John just doesn't show up in a body of water saying, hey, here I am over here. No, he shows up in the wilderness of Judea in a place that would have been so important and so prominent for the Israelites. Where John does his baptism is 100% absolutely the same place 
where the water parted and Israel came across and then went in to attack Jericho. It's in the same place where the water parted and Elijah walks across on dry ground. It's in the same place where Elisha then comes, parts the water and walks back across. Where John sets up the beginning of his ministry would have been a tip of the hat to all of Israel that God is about to do something new that Israel is about to experience another move. And right here at what I like to call the front door of Israel, God is about to enter and do something so profound. And so he anchors himself in the waters of the Jordan right there and near the wilderness of Judea. Um, one other thing that I'll add, and then we'll jump on. This is a lot of time in three verses. Um, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. Now in the gospel of Matthew, um, you, you will very rarely, if ever, it depends on the translation you get, hear Matthew write about the kingdom of God. And here's why, because he's Jewish. So I have a relationship with Rabbi Tokajer in Pensacola, love him. If he sends me an email, he will not spell out the word God. He will give me a G with a dash and a D. Even to this day, they won't say it. So when Matthew, who is the most Jewish of all of the gospel accounts that we have, talks about the kingdom of God, he's never going to say the kingdom of God. He's always going to say the kingdom of heaven or a voice from heaven because it would be inappropriate for him to say anything different. Now, why do you need to know that? Because later on when Jesus is speaking, he says the kingdom of heaven is like, and I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking he's talking about heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of God, the precepts, the design, the heartbeat, what God is all about. It's the way that Matthew writes about it and Matthew would not write anything different because he was Jewish. And so here we have John the Baptist talking about the kingdom of heaven coming near. And he's the one that's, gonna, that's proclaiming repentance, asking people to, be repent, to repent so that, they, so that they can be ready and be prepared for what God's about to do. Verses four through six. And if you didn't have any question, now he's going to define for you and describe for you an Old Testament prophet. He says, now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So just in those few verses, he gives you the description of what would have been an Old Testament prophet so that you know that God is doing something, but he also qualifies John. Because people are responding and they're confessing their sins, then John wasn't just some wackadoo that was out there proclaiming something. People were responding. So the only way that you can find out in scripture whether a prophet is a true prophet or a false prophet is what? If what he says comes true. And so John is, quali I mean, so so Matthew is qualifying John that people are responding. Verse seven, and here's how you know he's an Old Testament prophet. Listen to how, what he says. He says, but when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, welcome brothers and sisters, have a cup of coffee, sit down, relax. He doesn't say that. He sounds like an Old Testament prophet. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Now this is so important because John, Jesus, Matthew, who writes this after the fact, their belief is that the ruling order of the day, for the most part, not all of them, doesn't have the heart connection to God. That as they do their ministry to the least of these, those that were in charge of the religious faith in the heart of Israel, they're not even close and so John's call to the Pharisees and the Sadducees is you need to repent. And his call was to, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, the word repentance can be a scary word. 
Um, depending on the faith system that you grew up in, it could be a whip. Um, here's what you need to know. Repentance means to stop doing one thing and to turn and start doing something else. And so if he says the kingdom of heaven has come near, repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance, what that means is repent means to stop doing things that are counter to the kingdom of God and start doing things that are associated with or builds the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? And so that's the call that, that John is delivering to these Pharisees and Sadducees. He goes on in verse nine, he says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children to Abraham. Even now the ax is lying at the root of the tree. Even the tree there, uh, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now I've heard people read this and immediately they say, huh, see, there's a sign of hell that if they don't, they're gonna be thrown into hell. That's not what this has to do with. This has to do with transformation and doing things that are everlasting. And so what he says to the Pharisees and Sadducees is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, make sure that your life is about things eternal because if not, it's going to be consumed with this unquenchable fire that that tree is gonna be thrown into the fire and if it's not eternal, if it's not lasting, it will be consumed. So make sure that your life is about things that are eternal. And here's the other side of that. What he does is he sets a litmus test for Jesus. Because when Jesus comes and you compare him to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he does bear fruit in his life that's eternal. And the representation of his life speaks of the kingdom of God or it speaks of the kingdom of heaven. And so these verses really present um, that image, how they were not and how Jesus will. And so he sets the bar for Jesus. Verse 11 um, and 12, uh, these, are, these are interesting verses. I love this. And we've had an entire faith system created off of, of what's written here. So John goes on. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, because our church is a non-denominational church, um, and if you're new today, what, what that means is, is um, we have many different denominations represented here today, 25 plus, plus, plus denominations, a lot of different interpretations. And, and we don't ask you to check your denomination at the door. You can live into your rich heritage and you can celebrate Christ right alongside us. And we all live in the tension of agreeing that there's gonna be times when we disagree. And I wanna mention something here in scripture. So John talks about this baptism of repentance. And then he talks about Jesus and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in my, not previous life, in my early faith system, I come from, not in the Methodist church, but in an earlier faith system, there was the teaching that there were two baptisms that there was a baptism of repentance and then there was this baptism of the Holy Spirit and that you could be a believer of Jesus but not have received the Holy Spirit. And I can remember praying and seeking and praying and seeking and, and as a believer, just desiring so deeply to have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But there was a time and a swath in my life where I wasn't convinced of that. What it's, that's what it is. And I don't think that Matthew is trying to tell us that there's two baptisms here because I honestly believe there's one baptism. And here's, here's my case for that. We're early on in the gospel of Matthew and he's talking about John calling people to repentance and he would baptize them as in washing away their sins and then moving on into this journey. When you get to Acts chapter two in the day of Pentecost and the day of Pentecost happens and Peter stands up and he preaches this incredible sermon, 3000 people approached Peter and they said, great, we hear you, what are we supposed to do? And his response to them was repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. 
He didn't say, repent, be baptized, and then I'll give you a list of things that you have to do so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that God would do all of this and then make it hard for us to receive the Holy Spirit. What I do believe is that when we open up our hearts to believe in Jesus, then we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Then we work through the process of transformation to get our garbage out of the way so that when people look at us, they can then see the Holy Spirit that's inside of us. But that doesn't mean you only got a portion of him or a part of him. It just means we have to do the work. That's what the transformation is all about. And the next verse, verse 12, I think speaks to that. He said, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff will burn with an unquenchable fire. If you have things in your life where you feel uneasy about, that is God, that is the spirit of God living inside of you that wants to get that stuff out. That's that unquenchable fire that wants to get rid of it so that when people see you, they won't just see you in the hot mess that, I'll say me too, us, that we are, they will see the spirit of God inside of you and it'll draw them to God. I'm gonna keep on rolling. Okay, verse 13 down through 17. Uh, This is the story of Jesus' baptism. The way that Matthew writes this and presents it is fantastic. Um, Remember, he has to present the Old Testament prophet or the prophet. He has to present the, the Messiah and he has to bring all this together in a way that makes sense. So verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. And so for those who don't know, John and Jesus are cousins. They would have known the story of one another and John would have been expecting Jesus to move at some point into his earthly ministry. And so when Jesus shows up, John's like, wait a minute, I think you probably should baptize me. It doesn't make any sense for you to do that. So watch Jesus' response. And if you're keeping score, these are the very first words that Jesus speaks in Matthew. Verse 15, but Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. That's John. Isn't it interesting that the Messiah yields to the work that God is doing, responds to the prophet, and is more interested in fulfilling all righteousness than being the Messiah. Matthew perfectly pulls this together for us to understand that even Jesus in this place is subject to what God is doing, what the Father is doing as the prophet has presented him. And Jesus is going to be baptized just as it was prophesied that he would be. I just love being able to see that stuff. Verse 16, and when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him and a voice from heaven, Not the the voice from God. He would never say that. A voice from heaven said, this is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. And so when we end chapter three, you have Matthew now setting up the story for Jesus perfectly. The prophet has spoken, everything in chapter one and two that we've talked about extensively. Then you have chapter three, the prophet has spoken. Now Jesus is baptized. And, um, and then as he's coming up out of the water, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you get to see the Trinity. Heaven speaks and puts its stamp of approval right on Jesus. And so at the end of chapter three, we are perfectly set up for what we're going to experience in chapter four, which is Jesus getting an opportunity to prove what the heavens said that he was, that he was the Son of God. Now we're gonna get to see the test. Everybody good? Should we take a break, intermission, get some coffee, get something like that? Y'all good? Okay. Um, All right. So we're going to continue on chapter four. I'm going to read verses one and two, and then we're going to paraphrase a bit. 
He says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights and afterwards he was famished. Can we all agree that's probably true? Right, like here I am after just eating breakfast this morning and I'm already famished. So 40 days, I can't even imagine it. That would be true. Verses one and two are replete with references to the Old Testament. It says, Jesus was led up by the spirit. Think about the Exodus in your biblical story, that it was God who led the Israelites, a pillar of fire or a cloud of fire that he led them by the spirit into the wilderness, same part of the story. Here he is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Think of the Israelites standing on the edge of the Jordan River. They send the spies into the land and they, ha- they were tested. They came back and what did they say? 10 of the 12 said, we can't go in there. We look like grasshoppers in our own eyes and they failed the test and then they had to go back into the wilderness until God could work into and fashion them into a people. And then this last part in verse two, and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now here's what I need you to know about these numbers. Could it have been 40 days and 40 nights? Yeah, could have been. Could it have been 25 days and 25 nights? Yeah, could have been. What Matthew wants you to know is that an entire season or something significant has changed. More than likely in this scenario, Jesus has come to the end of his physical self, that he has fasted 40 days, and the number 40 in the Bible means that a season has changed or something significant has happened. And so he presents and sets us up for this time in the season and testing with Jesus, where Jesus has come to the end of himself, his most vulnerable place, and he's confronted with three different trials. Now in this test, I've heard these preached a thousand times, and I'm gonna tell you there are a thousand great messages. I think as, as pastors, we work so hard to wrestle scripture into our context that sometimes we try to get them to say things that they don't I don't want you to get hung up on all of that. So people try to say that this is spirit, soul, and body, like that's, those three things all relate to that. I, for, the, for the sake of our message, I want you to think about Matthew. Matthew's writing to a Jewish context, and he's got a, Jesus is going to go through three trials, and these three, I think, make sense to Matthew's audience, and you can read them and wrestle with them later and see if they'll make sense to you. And so the first one, Jesus is hungry. And the tempter comes along and says, hey, turn these stones to bread. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. He goes, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the father's mouth. I want you to think for a moment about Adam. And so in this very first battle, Jesus defeats the need for self or the desire for self. When you look at the battle of all humanity, the battle of Adam in the garden, Adam wanted to be like God, would not deny himself and took the fruit. And so there's a parallel, I think, where the very first battle that Jesus fights or the very first test that he passes is to defeat his own desire and his own nature. And he sets it to the side. So he defeats the understanding of Adam first. The second one, he takes him to the top of the temple and he says, throw yourself down. Surely God commands all of these angels and they will come and they will rescue you and you'll just be fine. And Jesus says, "Uh, we're not gonna put God to the test. Think about the Israelites in the wilderness. Once Moses gets them out of Egypt and they're walking around, the very first thing they do is say, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we need food to eat. It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt, right? And so what they do is they test God. God's got to give us food. God's got to give us water. Over and over and over again, they use God like a vending machine to give them what they wanted and what they desired. Jesus faces that battle, and what does he say? I'm not going to put God to the test. If God brought me to this place, God has a purpose and God has a design. And so you see him defeat Adam. You see him defeat even the challenges that Israel was going through as a nation. And in the final and third battle, he takes him to the pinnacle to where he can see all of these other nations. And he, sa- he doesn't question anymore if he's the son of God. He says, 
He says, how about this? I'll just give you all of these kingdoms if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, uh-uh. You know, worship the Lord your God only, is what he says. And what he offered him in the final trial was a shortcut to becoming the Messiah. And Jesus says, not even that. He goes, I will subject myself and place myself down for whatever the will of the Father is. And if it's going to be the Messiah, it's not going to be the way that you go about it. It's going to be the way that God goes about it. And so in these trials, I believe, when you look at Matthew's congregation, he defeats the problem that Adam had. He defeats the problem the Israelites have. And now his own calling and his own purpose, he even yields that to God which sets himself up as being ready to now launch into his earthly ministry. And so quickly, oh man, I wish I had another 20 minutes. Um, so I'm gonna speak fast enough to get it all in the next 10 minutes. Are you ready for this? Um, verses 12 through 16. You almost need to understand the, the Hebrew faith in order to be aware of what he's about to say, but this is awesome. So now uh, Matthew has to anchor Jesus in the place where his earthly ministry is going to be. And he says in verse 12, now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And so this is where his ministry is going to start. But I'm going to tell you, if we were God, and I think we've already established that we're not, um, we would not start Jesus off in Galilee. We would start him off in Jerusalem, right? That makes most sense that we would go to the center hub of all things Jewish and launch out from there. But he doesn't do that. God drops Jesus right into the middle of the darkest place that they knew, which was right in Galilee. And then we're going to get some scripture around that that I'll explain in a second. Verse 13, he left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Nephtali, which are the two of the lost tribes of Israel that were exiled by the Assyrians. He said, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulon, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. Now you read that and you're like, that's really cool. What you won't see unless you read Isaiah and study it explicitly is that he changes the term on the end. Isaiah says that a light will dawn. And what Matthew says is that a light has dawned. And so what Matthew tells you is that God takes Jesus and drops him right into the middle of the darkest part of Israel. And you know what he does? He flips the lights on. And all of the people around start to see what God is going to do. It's so different and so counter to what we would think God would do. But isn't that God? Amen? So that's what God does. Now, quickly... Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven comes near. Same message that John proclaimed. 18 through 22, he starts to call the disciples. He starts to pull together his team. And then 23 down through 25, once again, these are very interesting verses that really thread through the gospel of Matthew. Verse 23, if you're writing down notes, is the exact same verse that you will get in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And so think of them as bookends. And here's what he says. He says, Jesus went throughout Galilee and he did two things, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, that's one thing, and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. We read that here in chapter four, and then we're gonna read it again in 9.35. And what Matthew does between four and 9.35, chapter five, six, seven, eight, nine, is tell you about his teaching and tell you about his healings. So this gospel of Matthew unfolds masterfully in how we're supposed to understand it. So he gives us the two bookends. He lets us know what he's going to teach. And then he teaches them. Here's the rest of the verses. Verse 24. He says, so his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afraid. 
Those who were, excuse me, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and far, and, and from beyond the Jordan. And so what you have now is Jesus is set up, and he's not just calling the Jews. All of the world at the proclamation of the kingdom of heaven coming near, the good news, all of the world is responding. And now this place that was known as the, the, the darkness, um, the shadow of, of, of death, people are responding. They're starting to see the light and they're running to find out what this Jesus is all about. And it sets us up perfectly for when next week we start to look at what his teaching and his healing ministry was all about. Is that interesting? I hope it was. Um, and if it wasn't, good. Um, this is what I'd love to tell you about this message today. Uh, and it, and it, it blows me away and it humbles me every time I do this. Uh, we as believers um, like to make things so difficult. We like to make our faith very, very difficult. But if we just stop and look at John and Jesus, the two the two that, they didn't start it, but the two that, the front runner of Jesus and then Jesus. Their message was, was pretty interesting. The message was they were proclaiming the good news. And the good news was that heaven has come near. Now, we, we don't, sometimes this notion of good news is lost on us. We have translated the phrase that they used as good news into the word, the single word, the gospel. But I want you to know there was a time when this gospel or this story was good news and people would come flocking to it, right? And, and so the good news or the story that they were sharing is that the kingdom of heaven has come near or the kingdom of God has come near. Now just set your brains and culture and everything to the side, which is impossible for us to do. Wouldn't it be interesting if you, or let's set yourself aside, if somebody came up to you and said, hey, you're not even gonna believe this, but just come with me because the kingdom of heaven has come near and I want you to see it. Like, I want you to see what it's like, what it represents, a picture of what God is all about. Now that sounds really weird to us, but that is exactly what they were saying to people. Hey, guess what? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is coming near. It's in the form of a person. Listen to his message. Listen to what he's saying. Look to what he's doing. And when you come and you see him, you're going to see an image and a portrayal of God, what the kingdom of heaven and the precepts are all about. And I want you to know that there was a time when people would run and flock and go to go see it. Right now, I look at that and I wonder if maybe that good news is not lost today because people are afraid of what they're seeing and maybe they're not seeing the same good news. But here's why I believe that's the case. The response that both John and Jesus offered to the early church or offered to the Israelites during this time is this. The kingdom of heaven has come near and then they give them a single word. They say, here's what we want you to do. We want you to repent. Now we hear that word repent and it scares us. We want you to repent. And I explained this earlier, but in essence, this is what they were asking them to do. We want you to stop and look and understand that the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so stop doing things that aren't in keeping with the kingdom of heaven and start doing things that are. Now, here's what's so amazing about that is when you are doing things that are like the kingdom of heaven, when someone sees you and you say, hey, the kingdom of heaven is near, when you're living into kingdom principles and kingdom life, then they honestly get to experience what the kingdom of heaven is all about. Does, does that make sense to anyone? And so 
but it's through repentance. And repentance is, is at some point in our life, and I don't want to make this into a mean beat you over the head thing, but at some point in our life where we stop and we say, God, I truly believe that what you say is true. So what is it about my life that stands between you and me and I'm going to get it out of there? We've turned that into a beat people up message all day long when really it's removing the obstacles, removing the barriers, and making the paths straight. The most simple message that you can ever understand is that if we want to experience God and we want to experience the kingdom of heaven, we have to repent. We have to be willing to walk away from those things. And here's the most profound part. There are some things that you can control in life, but the only thing that you can control about the gospel message in your life is your response to the gospel message. And the only response you can have is to either reject it or to allow it to transform your life. And here's what I know. If you take that call serious and I take that call serious, then there will be people in this world that will be running to experience the kingdom of God because they will see it in our lives. Amen? Amen. And so my hope is that in this message and in this time when we can make these things so difficult that we'll understand that it's all about transformation. It's all about allowing God to do the work inside of our hearts that God has wanted to do all along. And it means just getting serious and removing the garbage and allowing God to be the single most important thing in our lives and then allowing that to be on display. Those are the battles that Jesus fought, putting God first, allowing God to be the one that says grace over our lives. And if you're here today and maybe you're not a believer and you've never had the opportunity to open up your heart, I want you to know that Jesus made a way for you. He wants you to be connected to the kingdom of God. He wants you to experience the love of God in your life. And it simply starts with you opening up your heart and saying, Jesus, be my Lord, be my savior. And then we start this process. Um, Kyle mentioned it earlier. It's just a belief that I have that God loves you exactly as you are today, but he loves you so much he's not gonna leave you like that. We're gonna start this process of transformation because God loves other people and he wants them to see the transformation in your life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. And God, I thank you for this message. I thank you for the ability to study and try and dive into the mind of Matthew and his congregation and what he's presenting. And, and Lord, I pray that today you would remove the confusion and the aspects of Scott that would get in the way and that you would allow us to hear plain and simple that you loved us and you made a way for us. In the darkest of times, you dropped your son Jesus into the middle of this world and you turned the light switch on. And I pray that today that light would illuminate and it would illuminate our hearts and illuminate our lives and then offer us to then turn and do the very same thing for people around us by opening up and choosing to believe in your son, Jesus. I pray for people that are here that have been bound up by things that, that have not been able to change in their life forever, that maybe today would be that day when those things start to break and they find freedom from areas that have held them back forever. Allow that Holy Spirit that lives inside of our lives to just continue to transform and to continue to bring us along. God, we love you. Oh, we so desperately need you. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I invite you, if you will, to stand. And as um, Jeff sings this final song, I encourage you, if you'd like to, to sing along with him. Um, Addie is down here on the front. She'd love to pray with you. I'll be on the other side. I would love to pray with you. But I do thank you so much for your time today. I've got nothing 
this 1130 service, this time we can gather together. And although it hasn't been 40 days, I'm sure you are famished at this point in the day. If you're new here, if this is your first Sunday with us, uh, we'd love to have a conversation, get you connected right in the Next Steps room out in the lobby after this. If you're watching online, reach out to us uh, through, uh, through the website, through email, and we'll get you connected as well. Before we leave, let's pray, y'all. God, we love you. We are so thankful for this morning, for this moment, for this time we can gather together in worship and study and be reminded that you're a God who has moved all sorts of barriers to have a relationship with us. So God, I pray that you'd help us to pray those scary prayers, inviting you to reveal to us those things inside of our lives that might be hindering us, hindering us from following you more closely. And God, our prayer is that when others see our lives, they don't see us, but they see your son, Jesus, walking and talking and acting and serving and loving and showing grace right here in our community. I'm so thankful for these folks, and I pray that you give us exactly what we need as we head out from this place and face the week. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. We love you all. Have a great week.